Shut up and sit down. everybody my 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 headset was weird it was like echoing in my head okay um but can you guys hear me i hope so get that shit okay anyways (laughs) i hope you guys can hear me um i i uh i um I've just been fucking around doing nothing all day. Um, I've um, see the thing is, is I finished my quantum bang and I can't start my um, nano. Obviously, we can't start that till November first, and so I'm trying to avoid opening up my quantum bang to give myself some distance from it before I go into beta, so I'll be able to see my mistakes, um, which is something I tell a lot of people to do that I don't normally do myself. Normally, I will go from um, one draft to the second within a, within a couple of days, um, but my quantum bang is so big, and um, it is my first big bang, so I, you know, I, I kind of want it to be as, as good as possible, so I'm trying to you know, follow my own advice and give myself you know, 30, 45 days in between um, the first draft and the second draft, so I can't open it. Um, I haven't opened it since I closed it that final time when I declared it done and um, shared it with my future betas. And like, okay, you know, just just a heads up, this is what's going to happen when you see it eventually in a second draft. And um, <clears throat> so not touching it is, is driving me bonkers. I've actually plotted my nano three times. Um, I've done some fundamental world building changes. Um, I... Um, I've taken my dog for so many walks the past week. When I went to get his halter today, his 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 harness to to walk him, he hid from me. Yeah, he was like, "Bitch, no!" and went and got in his doghouse. So I'm like, "You don't want to go for a walk." dog turned his back all I could see was his tail in his little igloo doghouse so um I took the the Jack Russell for a walk and he's old you know so he doesn't like a walk so we did about I don't know a half a mile and then I had to carry his little ass home because he was tired and tried to lay down in somebody's yard. So obviously their um their patience will be for the week. <laughs> but yeah, my fic for quantum bang is 115k. Um <laughs> and the minimum for the challenge is just 50. So yeah, I'm an over I'm a little bit of an overachiever. <laughs> Although I had originally thought it'd be about 150, so I actually did really well in keeping it as tired than I thought it would be. But that's just the first draft, and if anybody's 
ever worked with me as a beta with a big project like this, it could gain between 20 and 30K in the second draft. So it might end up being 150 by the end of it. <clears throat> Especially if I give myself room to think about it and, and not, you know, dig in. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we got two questions tonight. We're going to do two questions. Um, Julie picked out the first question. Um, it's from Daisy, and I picked out the second question. Um, and it's from, you know, I've always said your name, Jessica, but looking at it, that's not that. that that's not Jessica, is it? But is it? Uh, let me ask Julie. Where is it, Julie? Where is it, Julie? Do you think that's Jessica? It's not the way it reads to me. It reads to me as um, Jekissa. I'm going to call you Lynn, sweetheart. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't want we'll to butcher your name. <laughs> we'll, just call you, we'll just call you Jay. 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 Jay Lynn. Jay Lynn. Jay Lynn. Like there, there you go. Only Jay Lynn. better. <laughs> yeah. Because writer. Writer, absolutely. So the first question is from Daisy, um, and she says, you've spoken about preferring to write character-driven stories as opposed to plot-driven stories. Could you describe the difference between them and what they actually mean, please? Because your characters need to have something to do, plot points. So what makes it character-driven rather than plot-driven? This is my perspective on it, and Julie will have one as well. Um and we may meet in the middle or not because sometimes we'll <laughs> approach a problem from two different angles and we kind of mean the same thing, but we're talking about it differently, which is good because that gives you two points of view on the topic. Um, Harry Potter, the series, is plot driven. It is plot driven because it is told mostly from Harry's point of view. And he is dragged through that story from the moment his parents are killed until the moment Voldemort drops dead, by external motivations. What he wants never matters. If Harry Potter had been told from Voldemort's point of view, it would have been character-driven. Because ultimately, Voldemort's goals drove the entire seven-book series. That's just my personal opinion about it. So basically, um, character-driven stories, um, your character is acting, and the events of your story um, play out from his actions. But in a heavily plot-driven story, your character is often forced to action from external events. Now, that's my opinion. Jilly, lay it on us. <laughs> it's a little different. It's a little bit different from the way I learned it. Um, okay. Which is that um, now I I do want to give give the caveat that most writers lean one way or the other, and they learn the direction they lean, and most writers then try to come back towards the center. They try to compensate for the thing they don't do as well, or they're not as inclined mm-hmm. to, because most stories that are really popular, you couldn't you couldn't easily say if the character are plot-driven. Because they're um, supposed to be kind of equal. It's supposed to be well-balanced, right? Because it's supposed to be enough character to draw you in and enough plot to keep it moving. Um, 
So plot, obviously, is the thing is events, and characters are more about motivation and experience. So when you're talking about experiential, that would be more character. And when you're talking about events and action, that is more plot. Um, to look at extremes, um, have you ever read a story by somebody that basically skips all the action? Like everything is like they're gearing up for a big battle or something, and then the next thing you know, the battle's over. It didn't happen on screen, and it's the characters reacting to what had happened and thinking about things and planning their next move. That is very character-focused to a detrimental degree mm-hmm. is the way I learned that kind of thing. It is so focused through the character's lens that um, the plot almost becomes an afterthought. It's still there, but it's not pulling the story forward. The plot isn't pulling the story forward. The characters are marching the story forward. The le- and the reason why, and I would actually, I always thought Harry Potter was very character-driven because the lens is so narrow. Um, For me, it's so, because he doesn't act. He's dragged through the entire series by the motivation right, of but, others. Yes, I, I. But to me, that actually even amp up. For, just from my way of looking at it, it amps up the character-driven aspect of it, because something that I think would be more plot-driven would have a broader focus than. There, sometimes what's going on with Harry is inexplicable, which you would think in something character-driven that you would understand the character's motivation. But what you get actually is Harry's. To me, what I really feel is Harry's befuddlement, um, his his sort of helplessness as he's, as you say, dragged through it because the lens is so narrow in his point of view. Um, and he's the least character. He's the least curious character ever created. Yeah, the lack the lack of any kind of objective point of view in Harry Potter is why it feels more character driven than plot driven to me, even though. Normally, I would agree that if I were to just look at the events in the book, that books that it feel, I would say that's pre-plot driven. But the focus, the character focus, is so narrow and so lacking objectivity that it it then reverts to me, starts feeling more character focused. It becomes more about it becomes more about him being dragged than even why he's being dragged. I'm sorry, it's true. He is the least curious character ever created. Wouldn't you have much <laughs> rather read Hermione Granger and the Sorcerer's Stone? I know I would have. Yes, and it, it, I think a Hermione, a Hermione-focused story, you wouldn't, have, you wouldn't truly have, you, you'd have gone as that. And it, and the issue of character or plot-driven would have been academic because it would have been pretty balanced because Hermione would have had insight into why is this happening and how best to get around it. And there would have been some perspective, the lack of perspective about what the adults in that world should be doing is another reason why it feels very, the the lens feels very, very narrow. Harry never even really questions the lack of anybody else's responsibility or accountability in any of the shit that he's been pulled into. But you so, know what? I read something from J.K. Rowling recently, a quote from an interview that that really brought home all my problems. She said she never takes into account audience when she's writing. Yeah. 
Okay. Which means she wrote a YA book with no thought whatsoever for young adults. (laughs) Which could explain why it got dark as fuck. (laughs) I think, well, that, I, to me, that means she wound up with a YA book. She didn't set out to write one. Because if you aren't <laughs> writing something with an audience in mind, what you get is incidental. <laughs> so, um, I'm going to write, I'm going to throw some stuff on the page and we'll see how it goes. Just see yeah, she was writing for, I mean, she started with an 11-year-old, right? That's, that, to me, is be- below young adult. So that's, that's bordering on a, a kid's book. So yeah, and I was reading that book to my eight-year-old sisters. That was uh, to me, that was a kids' book, right? At first, and then we got to Prisoner of Azkaban, and I went, "What the fuck is this shit?" That's I, a little adult. I can't read you this. You're not old enough. <laughs> um, my sister and I had this conversation about the Harry Potter books because my nephew at the time was like thirteen or fourteen when Hunger Games came out, and he wanted to to read Hunger Games, and I bought it for him. Um, he read the Harry Potter books. I don't think, think there was any reason why he couldn't read Hunger Games. And he read the Maze Runner, um, at least the first one at that point. Uh, and I read most of the books that he read, so I wouldn't have bought him anything that I hadn't already, you know, at least very very, re- very much researched. So I sent him home with this book. We'd gone to the bookstore. He goes home with Hunger Games. I get a call from my sister, and she is furious. And she's like, how could you give us this book where kids are killing kids? I said, are you serious right now? And she was like, yes, it's horrible. I can't believe it. I said, so you wouldn't let your kids read a book about a boy whose parents were murdered in front of him where he was cast out into to a world and where he lived in an, an abusive environment for 11 years and then he was dragged into a world he didn't understand where everybody carried weapons and he was manipulated and um basically led down a path of of a ritual suicide and he did in fact commit suicide um so you wouldn't let him read that no of course i wouldn't i said then you need to go take the harry potter books off your bookshelf she said that's about right she thought i really hate it when you're smarter than me and then she hung up on me You know, when you read the first book, I, I have to admit, you don't really think about the implications, right? Because you've got this lens of an 11-year-old who is coming out of a bad circumstance, and it's wonder and magic, and there's a villain, and it feels very youth adventure kind of thing. But somewhere along the way, it starts like, wow, and we just, you're inured to it by the time you get there, but it's just dark as fuck, you know? And it's like, is this really? And the thing is, kids who grew up with it, like if you were like 10 or 11, if you were like Harry's age when the first book came out, by the time things got really, really dark, you're probably old enough to handle it. But the thing is, is that some kids got the first book when they were six or five. right? And by the time the fifth book came out, which I'm sorry, I don't feel like I was old enough to read, um, you're talking there's murder, about there's torture. Who, right, who's not even a teenager yet reading that stuff. Uh, and it's, it's just kind of like, wow, this is, this is a kid's story? I, even, even young adult, that seemed a little much even for young. I think that 
and, and when she said she didn't consider her audience, yeah, I, I completely believe that. I completely believe that. I will say I do think she's fairly balanced on the character versus plot, but I kind of even have to kind of give her kind of a little bit of a – I squint at her a little bit on the plot-driven because she kept Harry pretty consistent, but she's got plot holes you could drive a fucking truck through. So mm. I would expect yeah, a plot-driven author to plot better. He never grows. Well, she's a pantser, yeah. number one. Um, yeah. That is obvious from – page one that she's a panther there's nothing wrong with that um uh but yeah you could tell um yeah the harry potter books are in the junior section of my bookstores as well boo um and boo i did get your questions um the questions for the night i think we'll probably answer that next week sometime okay um But yeah, um, when it, when it, when it, Harry Potter Harry got a strange dark. example. But, yeah, it did get dark, but it's a strange example about trying to figure out which it is because it's not a good example of either, and yet you could argue that it's both. So, um, and most books, and really, most it should books, be a balance, and so it could be argued that the balance is there, but it's my perspective versus Julie's perspective about what how we feel about the book because it does become yeah, it's a which, matter of which side how of the fence it came down on. Yeah. Right. Now, um, now let's say okay. I don't know. If you, you'd have to read both. Have read both authors to to be able to really understand where I'm. I mean, if you haven't, it may not make a lot of sense. But I would say both of these authors I'm about to name they're in a similar genre. At least some of their books are similar genre. Um, and I would say one is somewhat character driven and one is somewhat more plot driven. But they're both pretty close to having good balance in terms of – because that's what your, your kind of goal to do is, is stories that are really extremely plot-driven and don't have a lot of character, they tend to not be very interesting because there's not a lot for you to hook your your interest on without the people factor, right? Otherwise, you're just reading events and you might look up a history book. Um, I would say that – Stephen King is slightly more plot-driven, and Dean Koontz is slightly more character-driven. I would agree. And it's it's subtle yeah. nuance, but Dean Koontz is, and he, there are books of Dean Koontz's where he is all up in many characters' head. You get right into the character, the killer's motivation. I don't know, did you read Mr. Murder? No, I did not. I, I had to stop reading those books. They were giving me nightmares. I mean, just he, he could, he did. Dean Koontz yeah. in general and Stephen King both creep me out. <laughs> I don't read either author really anymore, but I used to read a lot of horror. Um, and especially Dean Koontz's more psychological thrillers really appealed mm-hmm. to me for a long time, and now they scare the shit out of me. Um, There's so much reality, from, I think, in it. it. You can see those, yeah. you can see people doing those things, and it's, 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 it makes you wonder what's in your neighbor's basement. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Dean Koontz is not lacking for plot, but he gets all up in what his characters are going through and what their motivations are and their experiences and their fear. And there is no lacking the character drive in his stories, including the drive of the killer sometimes. Um, whereas I think Stephen King is slightly more a little bit more plot-focused. Even stuff of his that is really character-intensive, I think, focuses a little bit more on the plot than on the character. <clears throat> I don't I'm going to have to, put, these... I'm gonna have to pause myself 
um, you carry on because my dog is losing yeah. his shit, and I don't know what's going on. <laughs> okay. I'll be back in a minute. Yeah, I now the stand. I mean, if anybody else has another opinion about this, I would say the stand is pretty. I mean, it, there's a lot of character work, and all of Stephen King's books have um, good character work. But I would say that the that the that the, um, the stand is definitely very plot focused. So it's not it's not a matter of are you one or the other, and that's the way you write. It's kind of more of a balance of figuring out which you lean towards. Like if you had to choose between writing how your characters, why your characters are doing what they're doing and how they're reacting to circumstances or writing the circumstances, which would you write? And that is kind of, might not be the best way of figuring it out, but it's kind of a a good rough cut at what kind of author you are. And Knowing that, the reason you would want to know that is because it's important to have a balance of character work and plot. And if you know the direction you lean, especially if you lean heavily one side or the other, you can work in your, in your, in your craft building, in your craft work, to bring yourself more towards the other side to get towards that middle. Because... Ideally, people shouldn't be able to look at your book and say, or your story, and say this is a character-driven author, this is a plot-driven author. Or if they can make a guess at it, that it's just by a tiny margin. Um, let's see. I'm going to go back and read the question to see if I've missed any part of it. Um, I I identify as a character-driven author because I will – skip over a lot of what I would consider irrelevant detail in the how things come to become the way they were. But I'm not going to skip over how my character reacts to it. But at the same time, I do see some character-driven authors like really get into the reflective character mode, and that can actually be really tedious. And so if you're somebody who tends to focus in that like really reflective state of a character, you got to kind of work on getting a balance to break that up a little bit. Um, and that be might be why, for you, why it might be a good idea to try to balance plot against character work. Because when you're talking about, like I read a recent chapter of a story I was kind of following. I don't read many whips. I always get into trouble when I read whips. And it came out with like an 8,000-word chapter that had like basically no action. It was basically all reflection. I would say seven of 8,000 words was reflection. Like the character basically musing about, thinking about things that happened and making plans. It's really tedious. <laughs> um, that, is, that is tell in a really boring, I mean, there's ways to do tell that aren't boring. That is tell in a really ethically boring way. Because a character can act as their deciding and you you don't need the repetition you know um but by the same token i don't i never quite start what to do with stories where it's just moving from event to event to event and the character never reacts they never have a feeling about it they never express anything and sometimes they never grow they don't change right and sometimes their actions are a complete surprise because you have no insight into them and that is 
where the character becomes almost incidental to the plot, they feel two-dimensional and plastic. So if that's the kind of writer you are, and you know that's, if you know character work is difficult for you, the reason it's good to know that is so you can you know, pull yourself back towards the center. Is try to work on, you do, your, you do your rough draft that has no character work in it, and then when you do your edit, you go and you work on adding in some depth. You know, because sometimes it's hard to change how we write our rough draft. You know, because no one wants to stall out and take an hour to write 100 words because they can't. They're trying so hard to make their writing be quote-unquote good. Um, but so it, I, I think it's better to just to get to, to know what you are, know where your comfort zone is, know that's where you tend to write and then when you go do your edit be able to look at it really objectively and say do I have enough action do I have enough depth to my character do I have enough events that are on screen <laughs> okay we're not talking about <laughs> off screen events but do I have enough events that are on screen that justify this what, all this character work I'm doing so and what a good way my, to do this <clears throat> To break this down, after you've done your first draft, go back and create two documents. Create an external motivations list, which would be all of your external events, all the events that happened in your story. Then create a internal motivation list, which is your character's responses to all these events their goals, their wishes, their dreams, their responses, um, their trauma, their happy, their sad, their, you know, just everything. And if you've got a giant list of events, if you say you have 500 events, I'm just, that's not something that I would go for. But, and you have 52 internal points, you've got a problem. It should balance. I mean, I think a lot of writers balance, it's almost a balance. I would say I'm probably 40-60 in that I have more external plot points than I do internal motivators, so 40-60. But if you're 20% internal motivations and 80% external motivations – You've got a terrible balance in your story, and it will and it will be obvious. It will be boring as fuck to read, no matter how the balance plays out. Whether you have too much character and not enough action, or too much action and not enough character. Yeah, it's either way. There's something that's going to be. Um, you can skew more plot focus, but if you don't have depth of character and your character's motivations aren't clear and their and their reasons what they're doing aren't clear, it people aren't gonna stay with it because it's the character moving through the story. If it's just events, that's like you know, it it that's that's like reading a history book. Um and I've read or a timeline like that. And the char- when the character feels like they, you could sub out literally anybody and the story would effectively be the same, um, and probably literally anybody would be better, uh, <laughs> because it, there, I, 
sometimes you like you read a book and because of the lack of depth of character, you can imagine almost any fandom character that you love and know in that role, and it would make it better because you would understand the character better. Like Jenny Weasley in, and I, I know I bash Jenny a lot because I find her character um, superfluous. Um, you could put any Harry Potter character except for Harry Potter in Jenny's role in the Chamber of Secrets, and it would work. Yeah, you could take. You could you could take a. Uh, it would have been more interesting it. if it had been Draco. It would have been more interesting because Draco had more depth. Jenny was a paper doll, from beginning to end. Yeah. It's now she was apparently in the movies in the book. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, did I so, just give you a running it, jeep? You're welcome. <laughs> so. <laughs> And in the, because Jenny's not the main character, it's kind of incidental that she's plastic. But when your main character is like that, where they don't really impact the plot one way or the other, and nobody knows them well, and, they, and nobody cares about them, then you're too, you're being too plot driven. You're focusing too much on the external events that are happening in your story, as opposed to how people are dealing with those events. You are but, welcome. By the same token. <laughs> But by the same token, um, if you've got your character musing on events for 60% of your story, that is way, way too deep. Because nobody's going to retain it anyway. For starters, that much introspection, people skim it. They're not going to absorb it. Yeah, they, assuming they get to the end at all, they're 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 skimming it because they're trying to find the action. They're trying to find something that's moving the story forward. And one thing that's happening when your character is thinking about shit is the story is not going forward. That's why you've got to temper your inclination to have your character think about shit. I mean, sometimes characters need to think about something. They need to make a plan. They need to react. They need to have feelings or whatever. But if that's five thousand words, <laughs> feelings or your whatever. story. Your, yeah, your your story is going nowhere if your character's thinking for five thousand words. <laughs> You've murdered your pace with introspection, <laughs> and many a story has gone down. Many a story has gone down with that. Now, so if you, you need to do it, more plot driven or character driven? I would say I'm the same. I would I would say I'm about the same balance as you, but flipped. I would say I'm sixty yeah, percent character, forty percent. 40% plot, yeah. yeah I think I, I try to strike a balance, but I I know I'm character-driven. And so I try to be sure that I bring in those, make sure that I have enough, that I show the events, that I have that stuff there. and Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I, I am plot-driven, so. and I admit it. And it's not something that, um, like, it's, it's not wrong to be either or, but you do want to strike that balance, or at least as get close as balance as you can. And some stories you do a better job in, yeah, you as Kira, but you in general. Because and some stories Kira. are, <laughs> yeah, either. But some stories are more about a plot, more about events, and some stories are more about a character. So, if, as a character-driven writer, you're writing a story that's more um, really about something going on with the character, then the story is going to come across a lot more character-focused than maybe you would usually write. But 
by the same token, even as a character-driven writer, sometimes you wind up with something that's very plot-heavy because that's just – some stories are a lot of external events. Um, but I, I will say this. that ca- projects where I have stu- I've stumbled on um, are usually ones where my plot isn't as strong as my characterization. <laughs> I'm putting too much effort into my characterization and my character motives and um, and my plot starts to feel constrictive, then I um, I stumble. I can look at every single project that I had that's really big that's not finished and say, yeah, this is this this is where I stumbled and this is why. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I mean, I've written some stories that I would say are more plot heavy, but because when I because I'm a character driven writer, when I approach a story that's plot heavy, it's going to probably hit that fifty fifty balance because I, it's my inclination to flesh out the character side of it. Um, whereas if I write something that is very I know is not very plot heavy, I have to work to get that. Make sure that. I hit towards that balance that usually I'm trying to achieve, which is like we said, the more the 60, 40 thing, because that's kind of my, where I've become comfortable. Um, but in a, in a story that's really introspective um, or that there's a lot going on with the character, it it's too easy for me to let the plot fade away. So I have to work to be sure it stays in. When I'm working with something plot heavy, however, it is no struggle at all for me to keep the character work good. So, and and that's that's you know that's just everybody has a strength, right? Whether you're whether you're just character work or plot work, you know what your strength is. That's why it's good to know is so that you know what to keep an eye on and what you're. Let me hold her on. What know what she is, and I asked her, and she says she's a work in progress. So what do you think she is? Is she more character or plot? I would say she's character driven because um, I'm nodding. I almost, agree. <laughs> she almost picks her characters before she picks anything else. So um, that's I mean she she like starts with two characters and put them together, and then the plot she moves the plot around the characters. Yeah. Oh, that. That's what it seems to me. I think it's obvious in some works um, more than others, but probably for me, it was most obvious in Lion Rampart, um, which, yeah, the character, yeah, I mean, it's just, no, it's not bad. No. It's not bad to be one or the other. All writers fall into one or the other. I mean, and it is, you don't find a perfect writer. There is no such thing as a perfect writer. Um, And so we all tend to fall on one side of the fence or the other. Your duty then is to try to get as close to the fence as possible. So for me, coming into a project, knowing that I'm plot-driven, my goal is always to get my characterization and my character motives and my character introspection up to at least 40%. (laughs) That's always my goal. Like, there was a scene early on in my quantum bang, and I was having a problem with it, and I couldn't figure out what the problem was, and so um, it was just kind of stalling me out. So I, I sent what I had to Jilly, and she said, well, this, this, and this, and this. And I was like, oh, well, shit, yes, of course. And so I put this this um, moment back together 
um, and inserted some emotional impact um, that I'd given one character but not the other. And I was like, well, fuck, there you go. <laughs> but it kind of tripped me up, and I stumbled, and I was like, there was something wrong with it, but I couldn't see what it was. But she kind of, like, lasered right into it because that's her skill set. And she did the same thing for for um, courting Hermione Granger, where I had gone from one extreme event to another. There was no buffer. There was no buffer between Hermione and Harry getting married after she was cursed, and the home invasion of her aunt and uncle's house. There was that 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 chapter that's there now wasn't there in the rough draft. <laughs> New, <laughs> like, whoa, whiplash. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was it was like shell shock a little bit, and I was like, "Whoa, you need to you need to give us room to breathe here, Kara." <laughs> and so I added that chapter, and it really and it and it provided enough um, uh, breathing room that it wasn't like got like getting punched in the face twice at the end of the novel. That's why it helps to know where you fall in the spectrum is so that you also can also, if you have people, you know, if you've got your peeps, you can, um, two plot, two, let's say you're too heavily, too, too heavily plot driven writers trying to help each other out. Um, they might not be able to spot the same problems. So, you know, I mean, sometimes it can be hard to find one person that you can, you know, get alpha help with or any kind of, you know, reasonable feedback from, much less finding people um, with different skill sets, more than one person. But just keep plugging at it because it is worth it to have other writers or editors or whatever, people in your circle who um, aren't exactly like you but that you trust because they're going to have a different perspective. I can even tell when my readers are character or plot focused because of the nature of the comments they leave. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because readers readers lean towards a preference. And they'll leave comments about the story and the things that are happening and oh my God. And then somebody else will be talking about, Oh, I can't believe Tony's going through this and this is so he he's gonna his his life is gonna be so much better now and it's like character focused, plot focused. <laughs> One person also, totally talking about the events, and the other person totally talking about the feels, right? I think that it comes out in the questions that you guys ask as writers, um, what you focus on, um, and the skills that you focus on building. So it says a lot about where you are in your process, and that's great because um, you're, you want to open yourself up to, to new skills, and the best way to do that is to ask questions about things that um, – that confuse you or, you know, or you don't understand or you want to learn about. Um, because, you know, language is a very, it's, a, it's an organic thing and it grows and moves and it's beautiful. Uh, and putting these words together and making a story is, um, it's just a skill that we learn our whole life. There's a great quote I saw when I was, I, I like to put up quotes for stuff on Minion Headquarters because permanent banner on the writer's table. I feel like it needs to look kind of professional. But 
it doesn't really feed my sarcastic desire to to be passive aggressive and give you guys advice. <laughs> so I do that in Minion headquarters. And I had this awesome quote that I lost, and I was going to put it up, and it was um, a musician um, who's 90 years old and is still practicing every day. And someone asked why he practiced at 90 years old. And he said because he thinks he's about to make some progress. <laughs> and that's beautiful because that means that – He's been learning his whole life, and he's still learning, and he still expects to learn. And that's what I want to be at 90. I want to still be going, yeah, I'm going to learn something new today. Fuck yeah. <laughs> I'm going to make a breakthrough tomorrow. <laughs> I'm going to have a fucking epiphany tonight when I <laughs> moisturize my feet. I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was great. It was great. I'll have to find it and put it on mini of quarters. <sighs> I'm making some progress. Because we're all, you know, we're all works in progress. And just because you're one way now doesn't mean you'll be one way later. Some people switch. Some people not only get so close to the fence, they climb over it. <laughs> yes. When I was really young, I would say I probably was more character focused for the fact that I really didn't know how to plot. <laughs> like oh I learned I how to plot I'm climbing that fence <laughs> I climbed that fence built a house <laughs> so what you are today is not something that's what you will be but you may be that you'll learn all the skills you'll you'll get there you'll you'll straddle the fence and you'll you'll you're still going to maybe like where you started better um, there's no right or wrong when it comes to character versus plot. You need both. <laughs> so it, I do see some people just not wanting to learn whichever skill they don't like, and so they just don't bother with it. Um, and it's pretty obvious, you know. If someone's written, you know, three or four million words and they have not evolved in their writing or, or even taken some steps backwards, they're not interested in actually growing their craft. So these shows, of course, are people who who want to grow their craft. And by when somebody asks a question like about character versus plot-driven, I assume that they are looking to grow. So that's why we talk about going towards the middle and learning the other side of the fence. And um, it's not because you have to. It's because if you want to grow as a writer, this is this is the journey. And that's the audience that we're talking to. But I want to tell you a little story about my mama. Okay, my mama retired. Now, me and my mama were in the cafe, and she was fussing with somebody on Facebook, and my mama can't type. She's a hunter and pecker. It drives me insane. I mean, she's over there two-finger typing, and I was like, you know, I could find you a typing program, and you could learn to type. This woman looked at me, raised one eyebrow, and said, I am retired. <laughs> I was like, and? She says, I'm not learning to fucking type. <laughs> Went back to hunting and fucking with her two fingers. I was like, okay. <laughs> I am retired. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I was like, are you serious right now? <laughs> well, I mean, when my mom was a kid, typing was something you learned to do if you wanted to get a job in a, yeah. in a, in a career. 
in a career where typing was necessary, which she learned to type. She took typing in high school so that she could have. And the first company she ever worked for was IBM. And um, so she had to know how to type. So it was a skill she needed to learn for work. Now, I mean, typing is kind of a necessity for being social in this world today. But I could see if you grew up where typing was like learning to weld. You know, you did it if you were going to be a welder. <laughs> you learned to type if you are going to be a typist. <laughs> she was not interested in being a typist. Um, Ellie found what I was talking about. It's Pablo Casal. Cassell? How do you say that? Casals? I think Cassell. Cassells? With an S or no S? Cassells? With the S, Cassell. That's how I would pronounce Cassells. it. Cassells. Pablo Cassells, who performed at the UN recently, is 81. He agreed to have Robert Schneider make a movie short, A Day in the Life of Pablo Cassells. Snyder asked Cassells, the world's foremost stellist, why he continues to practice four or five hours a day. And he answered, because I think I'm making progress. I just think that's amazing. I just think that's such a great um, mentality. I, I think it's awesome. And so when I saw that, I was like, oh, I put that on the headquarters, and, and then I lost it. But but thank you, Ellie, for finding it for me. I really appreciate it. <clears throat> I copied it down so I can get it later. <clears throat> but, yeah, Mama's retired. <laughs> there, will, there will be no typing classes for her. So while we were... um. So while we, while we were, like here was talking about Mama Marcos' refusal to, to type like someone from this century. Um, <laughs> I, I Googled plot-driven versus character-driven just because I wanted to see if I could get yet another perspective to give. Um, is it Daisy that asked this question? Is this it Daisy's question? Daisy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. I'll just read this real quick. The hallmarks of a plot-driven story. Um, when you focus on plot, you focus on events. Plot-driven stories are often exciting and fast-paced. They compel the reader to turn the page to find out how the characters will escape, evade, prevail, or overcome. As an author of a plot-driven story, you have to meticulously tie together plot points to create a cohesive story. You naturally focus on ideas instead of people and their motivation. In your story, you force your characters to make quick decisions that move the plot forward. As a result, character development is a secondary to plot development. And then they give an example of a book that is um, plot-driven, which is Kindred by Octavia Butler, which I have not read. Um, I have not read it either because Octavia Butler makes me sad. She's a beautiful writer, makes me sad. The hallmarks of a character-driven story. Okay, and, and the whole focus of this article here is that, um, and they actually say it's up, up further, the top, further up, that... Um, neither is right and that you want to actually try to achieve balance so they make that point too is that you want to try to achieve the balance they say a character driven story is one focused on studying the characters that make up your story character driven stories can deal with inner transformation or the relationship between the characters whereas plot driven stories focus on a set of choices that a character must make a character driven story focuses on how the character arrives at a particular choice when you zoom into the internal conflicts you tend to focus less on external conflicts the plot in a character driven story is usually simple and often hyper focused on the internal or interpersonal struggle of the character 
In a character-driven story, the plot is used to develop the character. Many readers love character-driven stories because the author tends to put a premium on developing realistic, flawed, and human characters. Readers can see themselves or someone they love in these characters, and as a result, they connect emotionally. Amy Tan's The Joy Luck Club is one of my favorite examples of a character-driven story. She weaves together eight exquisite character studies of mother and daughter in a way that sticks to your bones. It certainly did. I have never ugly cried in my life the way I did through the Joy Luck Club. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll get a high to link to that article. Oh. Um, yeah, I, I I ugly cried through Joy Luck Club. Uh, the book and the movie. The the movie's gorgeous. I, I recommend both, but the the book whew, it'll tear your heart out. I mean it. It says something so much about the relationship between mother and daughter. Um, it's, um, yeah. And it's honestly um, it's, really rare because a lot of times media focuses on the the father and son dynamic. Um, so yeah. to see something like that about mothers and daughters, um, when I read it, I was just like, I was, I was overwhelmed. Beautiful. Yeah, I recommend. that really kind of just like get you by the gut and make you cry they often have a really lasting impact. Um, I did link the article that I just was reading from. Um, NewYorkBookEditors.com is where I found that. Um, and it, it's pretty short, straightforward. Um, so it's worth reading because they talk about, um, down towards the bottom, about you know how to write a plot-driven story, how to write a character-driven story, and, and a very broad brushstroke. But... Um, they do talk about, you know, do trying to come towards the middle. To give some fandom examples, I think that will be more accessible to people who don't want to run out and buy a book. Um, freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. 100% character driven. Obviously, it has a plot, but it is character driven. Yeah. Um, yeah. In a sandstorm by Mithron. Yeah, rip your, rip your fucking heart out. Sandstorms by Miss Ronnett will also rip your fucking heart out, but it is plot driven. Largely. It, the characterization in Sandstorms is outstanding, but the plot drives it. And it's a fantastic plot. Okay, do your work. Which, pick, pick one of your works that's more character driven and one that's more plot driven. Um, I would say Emotional Clockwork is character driven. More character-driven. Um, and I would say the first book in Lantian Legacy is more plot-driven. I'm, I had to didn't stop to think. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Not, I don't disagree with you, but I, I paused to actually think through it. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> But I am a plot-driven writer, so but I do think that emotional clockwork, and one of the reasons why it pops out in my head immediately is because I actually did go into that project with a personal goal to write something that was more character-driven. And when I finished emotional clockwork, I felt like I really succeeded. And so um, a lot of times when you finish something that you, that, that you had a goal for, um, and you're like, yes. I I fucking nailed that. When I finished Emotional Clockwork, I yeah, there you go. <laughs> I 
I nailed that shit. I was really pleased with myself that I met my personal goal. Because whenever I go into an RT challenge, because the, the word count itself is never going to be a challenge for me. Um, so I set personal challenges for myself going into various projects. And for that one, it was um, the uh, just really digging deep into John's character. What about you? Well, I'm spoiled for choice on, I mean, I don't have any stories that don't have plot. Um, The closest I have to plotless (laughs) (laughs) is, which I guess guess by that argument, if it's the closest to plotless, it would be the most character-driven, but I don't think that's true. I don't think it's the most character-driven thing I've written, but it is close to plotless, is adaptable. Um, the Teen Wolf thing that's totally from John's point of view. Um, I don't know. That's almost an anomaly in my writing because it is entirely tell. It's very short. Um, yeah, that one's weird. Um, that's Like I said, it's an oddity. The most plot-driven thing I think I've written is not on my site yet. Um, I'm still working on it. Um, and it's because the plot was really intricate. Um was um, subversive. It was the whole new world, Werewolf AU. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that one's the most plot-driven I have. Although, I mean, I don't have anything that is not at least 50-50, but I think that one is the most plot-driven. What's the one? Um, I can't remember the name of it. It's uh, mostly told told from Gibbs' point of view. Um, Memories. And I memories and I alphabet it. I think that's actually your most character driven. Yeah. It's definitely a, it would definitely be one of the ones I would I would identify as being very strongly you, character driven. You dug deep into Gibbs character, which is really great. It's a great story. If you haven't read it you guys should totally read it. Um although we assume you've read all of our shit Well, not all. I, I actually assume that 90% of my readers have not read my Hobbit story, <laughs> which I under which I understand because I understand about OTP violation. I understand it can be very uncomfortable. I have not read it either because I do have an OTP in the Hobbit, and your story would violate the fuck out of that. And I'm like, I just can't. <laughs> Thorin can't do Bilbo with mom. I just know. I know there's no sex in your story because Thorin's actually underage. Um, so I know you didn't go there. But um, still. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. I mean, Thorin winds up, I mean, the where that story's going, if I ever write the sequel to that story, is that Bilbo winds up being Thorin's son. So, yeah, it, 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 it can be very uncomfortable, I understand. So I don't, I don't most already have not read that story because they look and they go, wait, but do you mean Belladonna, like girl Bilbo? I'm like, no. <laughs> I mean no, I Bilbo's don't. mother. I mean Bilbo's <laughs> mother, and and they freak the fuck out. They're like, oh, okay. Well, thank you for answering my question. <laughs> I've had more than one person write me and ask me what I mean by Belladonna. <laughs> like, well, considering she's Belladonna's book, it should be fucking obvious what she means. It should be, but they still write. And ask, is this is this is this this girl Bilbo? No. Bilbo isn't even a speck in his mommy's eye at this point. 
And Bunker I'm Braggins sure awesome winds up being silly. Doesn't write anything that isn't awesome. I just can't. My my OTP is strong. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes when you have a very strong OTP, I get it. Sometimes it can be like, wait, what? What? No, 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 no. Not only not only have you violated my OTP, but you've made them related. Oh, <laughs> you've made my OTP father and son. Oh my god. <laughs> what the hell? What um, the hell? Um, but no, I, I am a, uh, now often, you know, I have OTPs where I'm okay with, you know, there being side pairings or whatever, but for some reason it's still the little thorn all day long. <laughs> I had when I wrote emotional clockwork, I thought I would have a problem writing the scene with John fucking somebody else since my end game was going to be McKay Shepard. And yeah, it was. I was like, I go into scene, and I'm like, can I do this? Hell yeah, I could do this. This is hot. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I wrote it, but I think it helped that I picked a character that I already knew, and that um, you know that Graham is really you know kind of spicy and kind of you know kind of um, I loved him. I love my character of Graham. He's actually a canon character, but there's practically zero information about him. Um, that Graham Simmons, I loved him um, in Sentinels of Atlantis, and so I picked him because I felt like it would be the easiest to create that um, that relationship, that um, that sexual chemistry, without any emotional content. Because I didn't want to kind of like bait and switch my audience. Yeah. So, and you have to be careful with that when you're writing your character, having sex with somebody else who's not going to be their ultimate romantic partner, um, and you're not writing a threesome, or you're not writing. I mean, you, that you definitely have a pairing that you listed on the on the fic. And so, I was trying to fuck a balance, and, but um, yeah. I mean, I've John heard Nick. stories like that where the person, the writer, gets me really into this OC that they've paired. Okay, I'm going to confess, it's usually Tony Dinozo with. Um, he's paired with an OC, and they have a great relationship. And then I'm, I'm really digging this guy, right? I like it, and I like Tony in that relationship. And then it's like all of a sudden, it does like a bait and switch when Tony just can't get over Gibbs. It's like, I can't deal. <laughs> I have to get I out of here this. now. Like it, I'm like, why did you make, why did you put so much emotional investment and so much likability and so much work into this OC just to have Tony say, I can't love you. I mean, it just, I'm like, I can love him. I can. I'll give him all the love. <laughs> <laughs> Let it me have this fucking asshole. It does. It does make it, and it makes him look, I mean, it just, yeah, it, that is, I would, I definitely call that a bait and switch. If your main pairing is going to be, one thing is you don't want to get super deep into a character that is not going to be. Let it be fun, let it be hot, but don't let it resonate, you know? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, ugh. Um, I do think the sassiest character I've ever written was Belladonna Took, um, which was fun. It's also the only piece of fan fiction I've ever written my mother's read. <laughs> Did you write she said she wanted to read some. No, but she asked me if she could read something in mine, and I don't want my mom reading my sex scenes. I just, 
I mean, yes, at that I didn't have anything else at that point that didn't have sex with it. Um, that I thought wouldn't freak her out. So I just <laughs> I just can't. I just can't. Um, so I I I sent that one to her Kindle. Um, and it was it was a strange moment between us, actually, because she read it. And she puts it down, and she goes, well, that was really good. And I was like, okay, thank you. I'm like, I didn't, talk, I didn't really want to talk about it, right? But then she says, but I didn't know you were a YA writer. And I went, what? <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with being a YA writer, but I do have some concept of what I'm writing and what my audience would be. I don't consider myself a, a YA writer. And I don't even, even though there's no sex in that book, I wouldn't consider it YA uh, in that story. Um, I just kind of went, what? I said, so because it's not dirty, it's YA? She says, no, it's just the writing style. I think your writing style is very YA. And I went, I can't talk to you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> this is over. We're not having this conversation. Is it because it was the just Hobbit itself is kind of YA? It might be. I tried to stay, keep the tone on brand, I guess you could say. So maybe that might be what she's picking up on. But I wasn't going to give her anything else comparatively, you know. So, oh yeah, it was just it was just this weird moment where that was the, that was that was the first thing she said was I didn't know you were a YA writer, and I had this like <laughs> I'm like did I fall through into another dimension or something? Did I give her the wrong story? Did I write a YA story? When did that happen? What did I forget? I think it's probably the tone of the story because it's Hobbit, and the Hobbit itself is a YA. I believe it's marketed as a YA, not Lord of the yeah, Rings, but could, the Hobbit. Well, so if the Hobbit was marketed as YA, then I did a good job of staying on brand. <laughs> but yeah, it, but um, somebody asked about impetus further up. I would say impetus is very character focused. It's only five k, but it is all Tony's emotions. Tony's emotions drive that whole thing forward. Um, if he wasn't pissed off, that story would be going nowhere. Because even though there's an external event that made him angry, the story is not. The story is focused on how he's feeling and what he's doing about it, which make in response to that event, um, which makes it really intensely character focused. Rogue says in the chat room that she wouldn't she wouldn't know what to do if her mom wanted to read her stuff and Boo says she wouldn't her that her mom wouldn't read anything that she wrote. I would let my mother read everything on my site except for ties that bind. I would not hesitate to give every single bit of it to her but ties that bind. And only I would keep ties to bind to myself because she would ask me questions about my relationship and my marriage that are absolutely on her business. <laughs> yeah, uncomfortable conversations is a good reason not also, to. I don't think she really enjoys beating us some romance. I mean, we um we share a Kindle account, um, and um I've bought some BDSM and I don't think she's read any of it, so I don't think that would appeal to her. Um, but my mom reads everything from JD Robb to straight up erotica. So, um, nothing, nothing I've got going on, on my site would freak her out or upset her. Not even ties that bind, but I don't want her asking me questions 
Yeah. Because they yeah. famously called me once while I was in the cafe and asked me to explain the difference between snowballing and um, what's the other one? Felching. Felching. So here I am in the middle of the cafe explaining to my mother the difference between snowballing and felching. And nobody wants to have that conversation. It wasn't awkward, but I'm just saying that's my mom. So I would not hesitate to um, let her read my stuff except for ties that bind because I don't want to have to answer questions about spankings and sex wings. Um, Yeah, I just, I don't know. I don't, I mean, I know my mom reads adult stuff. I mean, she's sent me rep book recommendations. I've sent her book recommendations. I just don't want to discuss Come on, read my book. And that, that's, the, yes, oh, yes, she has. Uh, she likes all your books. Um, I, you know, I, she even, she asked if there's anything on your site that I told her that if she wanted to read something on your site that she would not need to know anything about and the characters would be familiar to her because, Characters that are familiar to her outside of their canon circumstances kind of weirds her out. So I said, well, it says, you know, if you want to read something else of hers, you could go read The Awakening. So, um, I'm pretty sure, yeah, she told me she did read it, and she said she really enjoyed it. So she read The Awakening. Um, <clears throat> because she doesn't know anything about the Sentinels, so the characters aren't remotely familiar to her. It's too bad she's a Stargate fan then, because she'd probably really enjoy <laughs> Some of my Stargate work. <laughs> oh, she would love your Stargate work, but she she does know the series, so she would, um, kind of she would like not. This isn't. It's it's this thing that people have with fan fiction is that if it's not if it's not the show, they just read it. and They go, "This isn't right." You know, they they have this. You know, yeah. which is fine. That's their knee jerk reaction. Is this is not canon? I I don't understand this. Whereas we're like, it's not canon. Give me. <laughs> <laughs> I think the whole point of fan fiction is canon was so disappointing that I need solace. (laughs) Right, exactly. Or there wasn't enough of canon. Okay. The next question by Jaylin. And she had a really great um, opening paragraph. It wasn't a question. Um, And I thanked you on the comment, but also thank you um, for um, what you said. It was awesome. I really appreciate it. So, okay, Jalen says, you and Lady Heller talked in that episode about Harry is different in courting Hermione Granger versus other stories, particularly in the soulmate bond, due to the influence of his mother in the former. Do you think John Shepard and his brothers would be different if their mother hadn't died while they were young, or if Patrick had remarried while they were still growing up? And how would it impact their relationship with each other and with Patrick? I know in Ties That Bind, he has been with Jonah for a long time, but to my memory, he began that relationship when the boys were older. Also, the influence of a woman as a parent is fundamentally different. No better or worse, obviously, just different. Um, I think honestly... If John had grown up with a mother, he would be different. And it's not just about the female influence. It's about the loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, are a, you are a summary of your experiences. Um, and uh, this, this also comes down to nature versus nurture and uh, traits versus behavior. Uh, 
some things are intrinsic and some things are, are developed and, um, uh, I mean, you talk for a minute. <laughs> I'm having a hard time getting my brain to, to wrap around this. And I have I had my so. notes about it. I mean, it's my, it's my head can. And the thing is part of this, for me, this is a little bit of a difficult question to answer it's not just a matter of, like Kira said, um, a woman's influence on John. Um, it is my headcanon that his relationship with his father was so strained because his father was overprotective because of the loss of his wife. So um, when when a parent and when a parent is when dies, you know that leaves a, a mark on a kid. It it changes that kind of loss, especially if you're fairly young, um, but old enough to really feel the absence. Um, but it also left a mark on Patrick. And it did, so it didn't just change his maternal influence, it changed his paternal influence as well. Would Patrick have been the same father if he had had his wife still there? Um, I don't know. I don't think there was ever a canon name for um, Mrs. Shepard, my head is her name's Emma, so I'm gonna refer to her as Emma. But yeah, that my head my head is Amelia. They're they're actually pretty close. That's pretty funny. <laughs> so, um, would it be would it be different? Um, I do think that there would be there couldn't help but be a difference when you change something that major. But I don't think it's just a matter of is a woman around or not. I think it's actually more important. Um, what loss does to you, how the people around you handle you and your grief, how they handle their grief, how did Patrick respond to it, how did David respond to it. So everybody around John, depending on what point in his life that this happened, was shaped by that loss. And so it changed not just one side of the coin, which is not having a mother, it changed the other side which is it changed the way his father was. And I think it probably led to a lot of tension between him and his father, the way his, the, the way his father changed. Or perhaps it could have just been that he and his father would have always had tension and maybe Emma would have been a buffer. Um, in, in what might have been, um, Patrick's wife does not die uh, until, well, all their children are basically grown. Um, John is um, in the midst of a divorce. Um, he goes overseas. Um, he's posted somewhere else, and his mom dies while he's gone. So he's an adult, um, and and that's in what might have been. And it comes up later because um, Rodney asked John what was the last gift his mom gave him, and his mom sent him a care package after his divorce was final. Um, and in that pa- in in that package was a copy of War and Peace which was my little tie-in to canon and John carrying that book to Pegasus with him. Um, <clears throat> in Ties That Bind, um, the mother's not dead. She's just gone. She's not interested in being a mother. Uh, but in most of my stories, um, John's mother died when he was really young. Because yeah. <clears throat> I, I think it gives credence to his relationship with his father being difficult
Yeah. And I think that I think that the that the loss of his mother probably had a lot to do with why his relationship with his father was difficult. So um I know. I don't think that it's it's a very this is one of those kind of writer exercises that you go through when you try to figure out a character is, you know, how did the loss of his mother, when did that occur? Was it when he was very young? Um, because it does make a difference if you lose your mother when you're two versus if you lose your mother when you're 10 or eight or when you're 20. Yeah. Or when you're 20. I mean, how you respond depends upon, you know, where a character, where that, that person character is in their developmental cycle. Um, so it it's not it's not just it's not an easy straightforward question to answer, um, because not all maternal influence is actually good. Not all mothers are good mothers. I mean, if we let's look at a different character, a different canon character, Tony Dinoza's mother. Um, what what references we get to her? There's some inconsistent references to her. Sometimes she's portrayed as better mother than others, but she was a drunk. That's referenced a lot in canon that she's a drunk. Is it better? Would it have been better or worse for him to have been had um, a hovering drunk kind of hanging over him with the weird outfits and the stuff all through his teen years? Would that have affected him? Not that I'm saying losing his mother was the better thing. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is is that his mother living wouldn't necessarily have meant that things went better for him. Because he might never have developed any independence. You know, he might never have gone to military academy. I mean, a mother who kind of dresses her son in little costumes and treats him like a doll and um, is drunk all the time is not a mom who's going to handle separation from her kid probably very well. So, no. That's a helicopter mom right there. That's a stage mom. That's a mom yeah. who's going to be bitterly disappointed when her son breaks his leg and doesn't go, and doesn't go professional. So does it's not a matter I think of maternal versus paternal influence. It's a matter of just influence. Everybody you are around, you know, everybody that a character is around that has a significant role in somebody's life when they're a kid influences influences them. And if the mother is around and she's a positive force, it's going to have one effect. And if she, but a mother being around isn't necessarily a force for good. So, um, but yeah, can so if let's say let's say you write I write Emma Shepherd um, being alive in The Horseman. She's not on screen for very long, um, and I have four more pieces of that story plotted. Uh, if four four more episodes. In that, and I would think I'd be done with that. And it is different. I did go through and think about what it would have been like for them. And one of the things that I decided to make it be an obvious difference of her being alive is that um, the family never fractured in any kind of meaningful way. They were they all went they all the kids went military, but they were a very tight knit unit. Um. So there was a difference because she was kind of the the glue in the family. She's the only guide in a family with five sentinels. 
Um, so yeah, it would have had a dramatically different. They would have been dramatically different if she had died, especially in that scenario where you've got five sentinels and one guide, and the only guide of the family dies. And if I want to be very traumatic, very. And so I wanted them to be a tight, functional family, which is why I chose not to have her be dead in that story. I think that if you wrote it that they all come online because she died, they would be very militantly protective of each other. Yeah. But one of the things we talked about before um, is that when you change your character's circumstances, that you need to shape them a little differently. And what's important to keep in mind that there are... um, there are behaviors that develop over time in a character and, and he's just in a human being. And then there are intrinsic traits. Um, you can modify your behavior, but sometimes traits are difficult to overcome and sometimes they're impossible to overcome. Um, someone who's extremely introverted, that isn't a learned behavior. That's just who they are. Out, you know, extroversion, introversion, um, people who are naturally um, comfortable being alone, who don't need the stimulation of other people, who are perfectly I – mean, these, these are intrinsic traits. And uh, you can learn to be alone, but I don't think you can learn to enjoy, truly enjoy being alone like some people do. Like some people are very happy to be just be by themselves, who would be content to be on an island where somebody drops supplies once a month and never talk to them. That's not something you can learn to do. You could survive it. But to actually enjoy that, that's something that you're pretty much born with or not. <laughs> that's just my personal opinion. Yeah. <laughs> but somebody who is very introverted can learn to Thank not you. be. They they can fake yeah it, especially if there are like you know I know some people who have ext- who are extremely introverted who have very bad social anxiety and like work is a series of rules for them about how to interact with people and on the surface you wouldn't know that they were super introverted because they've learned how to who to have a persona I will call it a persona at work mm-hmm. it's not fake it's it's them applying a set of like boundaries and parameters for how they're going to function in an environment where they're fundamentally not comfortable. But are they, so they could look like they're perfect. They would, you would not think that they were even introverted, but when they're like people who are on for a job, right. People who have a customer service voice. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And these people, they go home and they, and they, and they close the door. And these are not people who go out after work, right? These are people who go home and they let the persona go because they need to be back by themselves. So you can have a character who is um, learned to appear extroverted, who is actually introverted. But so it's a matter of kind of how you interpret the character and what you, why somebody would develop that adaptive trait. What has happened in their life? And if you peel away the event that forced them to adapt to learn to behave in certain ways, then they're going to behave differently. 
Because if someone who's extremely introverted could work at home and didn't have to interact with people, they probably would choose that. But for survival, (laughs) they had to learn. They had to right. learn to go out and adapt to work in maybe a corporate environment or they had to learn to go out and work with customers. And so it is part of their work, and they, they put it away when they go home. Um, or there is that feel away that some introverts have, and this is a really interesting thing. If they're around someone who's more introverted than they are, it's like they flip a mom switch or something. They're like, do you need coffee? I'll get you coffee. They'll get up and get coffee for you. You, you have a question? I'll, I'll ask the question. Like, even if they're introverted, too, if there's someone more introverted than them, it's like they become their child. Now, I'm the mom in my, in my, my friend circle in, in, in meat space. If somebody needs something, I'll get it. My mom gene clicks on like that, and I'll be like, is your food wrong? I can fix that. Miss? <laughs> Oh, yeah, but I'm that I way, too. I have friends yeah. who are very introverted, and one of them's a little more introverted than the other one, and when they're out by themselves, the one who is less introverted takes my place. She's all in. Mm-hmm. She'll call for pizza. When she wouldn't call pizza for me if my life depended on it. What, you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need me. <laughs> yeah, I'm not introverted, but I often... I've, I would say most of my friends are introverted. Actually, yeah. most of my family too. I'm I'm kind of an anomaly in my family is that I, most of my family are introverted as well. Actually, I'm trying to think if any of them are extroverts. <laughs> but I am that person who, if they need to send something back, I will happily do it for them. And if I'm sitting with somebody who's introverted and who won't touch their food and they don't want to complain, I'm like, no, don't worry about it. I'll handle it for you. I even stick <laughs> my plate in front of theirs and put theirs in front of me and go, there's a problem with my food, so that they're not on the spot. Because I, I've lived enough with people who are introverted that I know how uncomfortable that can be Yeah, for them. So, But if you take away whatever impetus there is that would make your character act like an extrovert when they're not, and you peel that event away, well, they're not going to have developed that adaptive trait. So it's just something to bear in mind. Like when you, when you, especially when you're changing the people that they were exposed to when they were young, and growing up, or you change those circumstances, you there's a lot of traits that can d- develop positively or negatively around things that happen in our life. Sometimes positive traits develop out of negative circumstances, and the reverse happens too. Sometimes you have a negative trait that comes out of positive circumstances. So it's just something to kind of think about and bear in mind in terms of how you're developing your character and uh, yeah, building your character and looking at their at their life and their backstory. But if you look at their traits, their persisting characteristics, things that are integral to who they are, these are the things that you want to keep as far as consistency goes, so you can keep your character as consistent as possible um, in their in their new circumstances, so that they'll be familiar to your reader. If, if especially well, if you're writing fan fiction, that really only is where it applies. Um, like, what do you think example. about? Huh? Okay. Well, I was thinking about sense of humor. Um, I've seen some arguments about is sense of humor learned? Is it something? Uh, but I have seen toddlers that have a sense of humor. Um, I think it has some people humor in timing. I think that's all intrinsic. You you either got yeah. it or you don't. You're either funny or you're not. 
it's, it's <laughs> not really just the being funny. It's some people are just more amused than others, and it might be a matter of brain chemistry. I don't know what it is, but I know that I see some kids who are so entertained by life. It's like just everything amuses them. They will, and sometimes that develops in strange ways. So you take somebody who's like got an intrinsic trait of a sense of humor, whether they're funny, witty, um, whether they just find things funny, whatever it is about them, that can turn, that, that trait, that intrinsic trait can turn into something that's adaptive. They use humor as a deflection. Um, they become snarky and caustic uh, because they're trying to push people away. Um, they make jokes instead of answering questions seriously. That is kind of a negative adaptation, like dealing with negative circumstances using an intrinsic trait. But if you take away whatever events in their life cause them to use, let's say, humor as a deflection, then they wouldn't have that sense of humor in the same way. They still would have a sense of humor, though, but they wouldn't, it wouldn't be expressed in the same manner. Maybe they're just very witty as opposed to um, always making a joke at their own expense or something like that. Does that make sense? Some people are very quick on their feet. Um, they always have a comeback. They always have a, they always have a response. They don't stumble over it. Someone gets snarky with them, they're going to go right back at you. And you know, sometimes you see that. People who work in com- comedy are that's something that they have to be able to do. They have to have that kind of mentality. Otherwise, their audience will dominate them. Um, they have to be able to go head-to-head with a heckler and come out on top every single time. And so they have a very quick, natural response rhythm. And I don't think that's something you can learn. Yeah, it's just there. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people with that really deep, some of the funniest people who have that timing and that it's just there often really struggle with deep depression. And so humor becomes a mask of sorts for a lot, for a lot not, for every, not for all of them. Not everybody who's funny is depressed. But um, there certainly are a fair number of some of the funniest people I've ever encountered, some of the funniest things I've ever encountered have been very depressed, and many of them suicidally depressed. So, um, but it has a kind of, kind of armor. Good. Yes, I mean it's an armor, it, yeah, a deflection. They use something that is a strength to protect them. But if they didn't need that protection, they would still be funny. Is my point about taking something that's intrinsic and how it adapts based upon the circumstances in your life. And humor is one of those things where a character who is funny, who's had a difficult life and uses humor to like push people away or whatever, is if you take away the difficult circumstances, they're still going to be funny. It's just they're not going to be maybe abrasively funny or, you know, always try. If somebody asks them, how are you doing, they're not going to make a joke or, you know what I mean? I mean, you take away why they adapted a, a strength, why why a strength became an adaptive trait, and it'll but it'll still be there. It doesn't just vanish. And that's one of those things that I see sometimes happening is that you peel back um, a negative circumstance, and it's like the character suddenly is not recognizable. 
I mean, if if you peel back whatever it was in in Rodney's life um, that made him as brittle as he is when we first were introduced to him, um, he would not be. He would still be smart. You know, I mean, he's not going to be. He's not going to be a dodo because his life circumstances are different, and yet people. And people understand that. They they grasp that. They see Rodney's intelligence as intrinsic. But with other characters, I don't sometimes it's a little bit more di- a little more difficult to pick out what's intrinsic. And one of the things I would definitely look at is humor can definitely be an intrinsic trait. Um, I swear some kids are compassionate out of the womb. There's this adorable picture online of this little toddler. There's these statues of these little of these rabbits, and there's one rabbit who's not up on the ledge, and the other rabbits are trying to pull him up the ledge. And it's a statue, so of course it's not moving. But the toddler is up behind the the rabbit who's stuck on the ground, trying to help him up. <laughs> he's trying to help the bunny up onto the ledge, and he's just naturally compassionate and be helpful. Yeah. <laughs> so if you've got a character that is seems like a compassionate character or maybe it, they have a very strong moral center or they're striving for justice and you peel back the horrible event that triggered them to go into law enforcement or whatever compassion might still be there a desire to help people might still be there it's just a negative circumstance channeled that into what you got in your book show movie whatever so figuring out how to take when you peel back life circumstances or you add in different influencing factors is if you figure out what the, what, what is intrinsic to them and then figure out what would that look like when I change all these other things. You give them new goals. You give them um, new threats or new opportunities and how they approach these goals um, threats and opportunities. It greatly depends on where they're coming from. So Lady Holder just brought up something that it's a good example of uh, Jalen's question. Um, she brought up Styles. Um, Styles' obsession, I don't think Styles would have been so obsessed with his father's safety in the first couple, three seasons, whatever, if his mother hadn't died. Agreed. That is a direct cause and effect thing. The loss of a parent where he basically had one person left in his life, one person. He didn't clearly didn't have a lot of extended family. Styles had one. He had his dad. If he hadn't lost his mother, if he had had that security of two parents and he'd never been shaped by that loss, he would have handled things, I think, way differently. I don't think he would have hid all that stuff from his father. I don't think he would have hid. I, I, I think that he would have come clean about the whole werewolf thing. Um, I think probably he'd have been like, holy shit, Mom. Scott got bit by a werewolf yeah. last night. Gotta come see this shit. Yeah, he, he would have gone to his mom and, <laughs> and like, what do I do? But he was so focused on, I can't lose the one thing I've got left that I can't let him know about this dangerous thing, even though it actually put his father in more danger not to know. Um, that was all he could see. So that is, I think, more so maybe even than some other characters where it's not as easy to see the cause and effect. Um, I think with Styles, it's really easy to see the cause and effect of losing his mother and how it affected the choices that he made. I think another good example would be Harry Potter. If I think 
when he learns about magic, really shapes him as a character. And the sooner he learns about magic, the bigger the influence it would have on him. He would understand more about his circumstances and the Dursley's responses and their pathological desire to be as normal as possible, even though they're the most abnormal people on their whole fucking street and it has nothing to do with Harry. I mean, they're keeping their nephew in a fucking closet. That's not normal. It doesn't even approach normal to use 11-year-old as slave labor in your own home. And they are completely oblivious to it. I'm going to get on a soapbox. Anyways, I think the sooner (laughs) that Harry learns about magic, um, the sooner it would start to influence and impact his character. And I've always had this, in the back of my mind, I had this idea. And I used a a prompt on our first Thursday vignette with a trunk. And I wrote a trunk trunk story about Star. But I've had that picture of that trunk for years. And the first time I saw it, I thought to myself, what if instead of putting Harry in the cupboard, they put him in the attic? And what if his mother left a trunk at her sister's house that only someone magical could see? Well, that's an interesting idea. And that Harry opens that trunk and he finds out about magic. And maybe he doesn't know what to do with it first because he's so small. But the older he gets, and then he learns to read. Or maybe the, something in the trunk teaches him to read. So by the time he gets to like first grade, he's you know he's reading. And um, you know it was just like, what if the, what if there's a trunk up there and it belongs to Lily? And and what if it has stuff in it? And what stuff would be in it? I've always wanted to write that story, but I just I never have because I don't. I'm not particularly interested in writing Harry before Hogwarts. But well, another part of me would be really, really, really interested in him finding a trunk like that from his mom instead of, you know, something from his dad, but from his mom. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things you can do with, I mean, I'm not telling you what you do, but just speaking in general, what somebody could do with an idea like that is you, like, write an episode where you, like, lay that foundation. And then you, you have to sit down. This is where you have to kind of be a plotter because you have to work out everything Harry went through and then do a time skip to Hogwarts. Um if you don't do the, if you don't work out what he went through and stuff, um, your time skip. That's how people get into writing those that those you know that craziness where um, nothing is different. <laughs> they change literally everything and nothing is different, which is just crazy cakes. Um, but in terms of a thought experiment, and I don't, I mean, Kira might have more of an answer for this thought experiment than I would, but like. Like you've written, Kira, you've written both parents dead and you've written both parents alive, um, biological parents. And, of course, you've also written Serious Raising Harry. Um, but it's, it's interesting. It would be an interesting thought experiment to plot two stories, one where James lives and one where Lily lives, but the other doesn't. It's sad. It should not come out the same. I've got two stories like that, actually. I've got... Both both of them are started, and both of them end up being um, paired with Sirius, <laughs> Lily and Sirius, and James and Sirius. Um, Lily marries Sirius because she's afraid that Dumbledore's going to take Harry from her. Um, 
and she's just a muggle-born and, you know, Sirius belongs to a noble house. And so um, Sirius concocts a plan with his mother um, and gets her on his side because of the boy who lives. Uh, And she thwarts Dumbledore and Lily marries Sirius. But Sirius, he, they're married almost a year. And Lily's, like, still sleeping in her own room. And she's like, and he's like, but you're, you're James's wife. And she's like, no, I'm your wife. <laughs> and you know, so I need to get laid. <laughs> I'd like to get laid. Um, and then I have one where um, Voldemort knocks James out instead of killing him. And then he goes upstairs and everything else happens the way it happens. And when Sirius gets to Godric's Hollow, he um, he wakes up. Serious. I mean, wakes up James, and they can hear Harry screaming, and they go up there, and, and, and Lily is dead. And then, um, of course, everything else will play out very differently. Yeah. And, you know, there's different ways you could approach that kind of thought exercise when you're looking at, you know, what difference does a maternal versus paternal influence make? And it's not even so much the maternal versus paternal. It's just it's different people. Um I, be guys I never actually more read maternal. a where Harry is raised with Neville. I haven't either. But I would guess that I have read a fraction of the Harry Potter stories that you have read. So, um. Edie asked about the vignettes um, on RT. The vignettes are just for the writer's table. It's like, because I didn't want to host images on Rough Trade, I've never done a um, a uh, an image prompt over there, but then when we did the writers' table and turned it into this bigger thing versus just an announcement group, um, I thought we could do uh, visual prompts there. And so the the Thursday vignettes are just for the writers' table. But I suppose if y'all wanted me to, I could go over to Ao3 and make a stupid. Uh, what you call it, collection? Yeah, but you, we could also, if people want to post them on the workshop, we could create a folder on the workshop, a, a board on the workshop for people who want to post their vignettes. Yeah, yeah. But then I would have to post the images, wouldn't I? No. No. Okay. Because the whole point was I didn't no. want to post the images on the rough tray. Well, if you one of the things you I think one of the things you can do is if you post your vignette images in a public way where there's a public link, I think you can if you wanted to show them you could link to them. But they'd have to like go on your Facebook because you can't link to an image that's hosted in a group. But you can link to public images on your Facebook page. I think. I don't know. Well, the, the the Facebook posts are in our private writing group, so they wouldn't be available to the public. But all we're posting in the posts in the link in the Facebook anyway are links to the stories, not the actual stories themselves. Um, let me think about it, and we'll get Julie to think about it, and we'll noodle something, and we'll figure something out, okay? Yeah. I've been trying to figure out where I'm going to post them, so <laughs> I started too, but... I haven't finished them because I've been trying to work on something else, but I was like, where am I going to put these? Cause I'm not quite ready to put them on my website. Cause I need to 
key. I need to fix my website before I add more stuff to it. Um, you need to fix your website before I go in and do it for you. If I had admin privileges, you guys, I would already be up in her shit. <laughs> I had, I ran into problems. It was terrible. I know I, you did. I know, I know. I'm just saying. <laughs> no, I mean, in, in the fixing, I ran into problems. I probably spent like one day, like 14 hours solid working on it. And it was problem after problem after problem. And I think I have to have my website reinstalled. I think that's the issue. Um but I need to get on the horn with GoDaddy, and I just have not wanted to yeah, deal with Ellie, it. Yeah, Ellie, I called you names. You're a complete heifer. Did you call Ellie a heifer? Did you see what she did? No. That what heifer killed my uniform. Now, granted, she did warn for character death. I'm not saying you didn't warn for it. You just, but you're still a heifer. I mean, that will all affect oh. you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, her her first response to the trunk prompt. Well, it was the forest in the trunk. Each vignette has two pictures, and um, they can be either used together or separately. And, um, yeah. Don't try to placate me, A.D. Uh, it's, it's too late. She knows what's really going on. You, you can't you can't fool her. <laughs> but yeah, we'll we'll noodle something for the RT thing. I'll figure something out, or Julie will. Somebody <laughs> will. Uh, we could create a collection on Ao3, but it would be better if somebody who is like, well, no, never mind. I'm not going to say that. We'll noodle. We'll noodle. But we'll noodle. Yeah. If if a lot of people are posting them on Ao3, I could see why people would want a collection. But we will. Are a lot of people posting the Mayo 3? Has that come up? I don't know. I know Ellie. No, I know Ellie. No, Ellie, Ellie, Ellie did hers on her site. I did mine on my site. I just slotted mine under my big short. I just put another um, category for big short in mine. So. Because if I get one done anytime soon, I'll, I'll, I'll probably put it up on Wild Hair in the short term. I just. <sighs> My site and I are, are about to. We're not gonna. We're not actually gonna have a divorce, but we are definitely having a separation right now. <laughs> I think you can reinstall from GoDaddy. Yeah, I just need to get on the horn with them and make sure that that's gonna fix my problem before I, um, you know, wipe my site out. So, you know, it's just it's just finding the time to do make sure because I'm a perfectionist about those kind of things. I don't I don't go willy nilly with those kind of things. So. Um, I know some people just like, you know, like they get an operating system update. They're just like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll let that run. I'm the kind of person who, you know, is making sure that everything's backed up. And um, I just, I worry. I'm a worrier. <laughs> <laughs> the minute I don't prepare for the worst, there are going to be zombies. Um, I want to say, please don't ever... Um, take my stance on AO3 as disapproval for your use of it. I read the fuck out of stuff on AO3. I just don't post there, and it's a personal preference. Um, but I'm not judging you if you do. So, so, so please don't think that or try. You know, don't. You know, just don't. It's 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 very personal for me. Um, and it got more personal recently. Uh, <laughs> well, running your own site is work, and if you're not sure you're ready for that. Um, you know, try it out before you 
put, get a free WordPress and try it out, cross post, do double posting for a while. Yeah, double posting is a pain in the butt, but better than like shit canning all your stuff and then finding out that you hate running your own site. <laughs> right. And I do know people, I know people who, who that happened to that they've not been happy with some stuff on the site for whatever reason, and they delete all their stuff, and they go run a website, and they're like, I don't like this. I'm like, I, believe me, I understand. Stuff breaks. I'm a and control freak. I like, to ha- I like to be in control. You might have noticed. I have noticed <laughs> on occasion, yes. Once or twice, I have noticed that you're a control freak, but so am I. It's just, it's interesting Kira and I usually are not control freaks about the same thing. So, and because we both have OCD and we both are control freaks, we're perfectly happy to tolerate each other's <laughs> quirks. So, usually what that means is whatever, if we're ever working on something together, it gets all OCD'd all over the place because there are things all I'm over the place. Like really, really fussy about that Kira's not, and there's things Kira's really fussy about that I'm not. And as a result, everything gets covered. Okay, so did we answer? I thought like that we kind of it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a I don't think we got a great answer for Jalen's question because um, there are a lot of running parts in your question, and what it boils down to is um, characterization and goals, like. What do you need from your character? Like for me, when I'm looking at my character's background, I'm building my background to support how I intend on characterizing my character. <laughs> well, I, I build think, the top down. Well, I do think that there's something very specific about in the question about maternal influence that um, I don't think you need a woman to have a maternal influence. I mean. I've known guys that are way more maternal than I am. Um, many, actually, I would say many of my male friends are more maternal than I am. So, but that's all that, that's not, that actually has a lot to do with them. It has more to do with me not being terribly maternal. Um, but there but, is that whole hand that rocks the cradle thing. Um, yeah, but there is. should also to- keep in mind that like 90% of serial killers had terrible mothers. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, there's something. There is something to be said for maternal influence and and how it would change a character. Um, I just don't know that I have a good answer for it. Um, in terms Look at of maternal influence of Petunia. Well, yeah. But, I mean, it's specifically the character she called out, which is John, and it's because we don't really know anything about his mother, and I don't see him as being particularly maladjusted. Um, no. Well, in canon, he is someone wrote someone wrote once in a fic that I like, which is the best line ever, and I've said it before, and I'll say it again. It's the best line ever. It really describes John. This is John walking around with a Teflon coating. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is, is that John, in a lot of ways, is untouchable in canon. He's 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 um, even his relationships or the situations that appear to be intimate, he seems to be aloof. Yeah. And he does he does seem like he's a little apart from the action all the time. 
detached emotionally. And, um, of course, that reminds me of that fic where they find out that John's a clone of a, he's, um, that he's basically, uh, his genetic code was used to create a whole collection of sociopaths. And they're all upset, and John's like, "Oh no, this this actually makes perfect sense." Okay, then, John. I've not read that story, but it sounds interesting. But I think that hello, I, I are you here? Make... <laughs> Do you know that story? Can you hear me? No, I was saying Willow. Yeah. Are you here? <laughs> oh, Willow, are you here? <laughs> I mean, I think that you. Um, I think you can make a case, depending upon what you want to do with your story, you could make a, a, a case that having his mother around would affect him quite a lot to not very much, um, depending upon what kind of, what kind of, how much, how involved she was in his life. Um, was she as mothering as Patrick was or whatever? Did she make the, did she, did she parent in the same fashion that Patrick did that created the rift between John and Patrick? I mean, so when it comes to something like that where we don't know a lot, it's pretty easy to make the case to be whatever you want. Um, it's just I don't – It's diff- the reason why it's specifically difficult to, for me to answer in regards to the specific question asked about the character asked is because I don't see him as, like I said, other than detached, I don't see him as particularly maladjusted. So it's hard for me to say what – a good, if his mother being alive, how that would be different. If he had a close relationship with her and he wasn't estranged from his family, I don't know that he'd have gone to Atlanta. So maybe you could make that conjecture. But for most people who want to write a Stargate story, that doesn't help them. He probably would not have gone to Atlanta without at least making contact with his parents. Yeah. I mean, anytime I would write John as having being in a good relationship with his family, um, I ha- would have to write the expedition as reasonable expectation that they're coming back home. Um, so that that's you know, as in um, the Daedalus is six months out, that they're only expected to live out there for you know at most six months on their own. Um, you know that it it's dangerous, but that it's not necessarily an almost guaranteed one-way ticket so um but you know if because if you write a character as being very close with their family a mother father brother you know siblings whatever and they make a what they think is a one-way trip very highly likely suicide mission or at least they're going to be living in pegasus for the rest of their life that kind of makes them an asshole if they don't talk to their family you know they just vanish that's kind of dickish. And I have a pet peeve lately about people unintentionally making their characters assholes. Don't do it. Do your assholery on purpose. Do it with deliberation. Don't do it by accident. She found it. No, that's not it. This is an off-world thing, and they all look exactly like John. And um, they're all like they're all assassins. They're like ancient assassin soldiers, and programmed basically just to kill. 
They're like what you call it, stormtroopers. <laughs> no, I mean there's a, there's assholery we like and then there's um then there's just the people you kind of want to stab. And if, you know, when my reaction to the main characters, I'd like to stab them between the eyes. Um, something went awry with your assholery. It isn't charming. It isn't cute. It isn't funny. It's just dickishness. And, you know, like I said, do it on purpose. Just if you're going to make your character a complete asshole, do it on purpose. Don't, don't do it unintentionally. Are you there? I'm here. I'm just. I'm. I'm really. I can't find this thing. No, no, no that was <laughs> not. I, the, there's this faint hum of static when we're on the phone, oh. and all of a sudden everything went completely quiet. And I went, "Did I get dropped?" But, um, yeah. but no. When somebody takes one of my one of my unicorns, you know, a fandom unicorn, like like Tony, either Tony, Tony Stark, Tony Minoso, um, Styles, um, Harry. Blair and turns them into a dick, an abuse. Usually, it's because they're becoming abusive. It's like they're so you know witty and clever that they're you know humiliating and verbally abusing other people. I have a hard stop on that. It's like no, and I know that it's not. I can tell that the author loves these characters, and I know it's not their intent to turn their these characters into assholes. But that is what's happening. That's the way it comes across, you know. What's well, that? My brain is. Um, I read a fic once, many moons ago, where um, two of my favorite characters were used to basically. Um, they're in the scene with this woman, and this woman in canon is pretty much an asshole, um, and so you expect to be really just amused by her takedown, right? Except. Mm-hmm. When it happens, there are four or five men in the room, and she's the only woman. And by the end of it, there was a knot in my stomach, and I saw every single one of the characters that I normally joy, enjoy as the kind of threat no woman wants to be alone with. Yeah. And I was horrified. I was like, oh, my God, that was not – I hope that wasn't your intention. Well, and, and, and sometimes I, I actually know exactly what story you're talking about, um, and <laughs> I know I know I know it wasn't the author's intent for it to come out like that, um, but it. I mean, when I read like okay, so just as come a very popular trope is like you know Tony having enough and taking Tony or I mean Ziva and McGee down a peg or whatever. When he's calling them names and. Um, basically verbally humiliating them in front of the entire office, that doesn't look bad on anybody but him. Because I hate when I have a, a pr- character tell some other character that they're stupid. But on yeah. Rodney, and Rodney's different <laughs> because everybody's stupid to Rodney. But when it's being yeah. used to be like a genuine degrading insult, I just, oh. Yeah, when, when, when it gets to be name-calling and um, in a professional environment, it's just... I just can't deal. 
you know, I just, and I go, wow, wow, Tony is a complete asshole. That's my unicorn you're making an asshole. Stop it. Um, I was reading a story yesterday or the day before or whatever where Styles was just, he was supposed to be a badass, right? But what he was was a dick. He wasn't a badass. He was just a dick. And he was a dick to everybody around him. Um, and I see that happen with Styles a lot is because he's so fast and he's so quick and he's so smart and they and that translates into I mean yeah he's kind of he, he is a little bit of an asshole in canon but when you amping that up when you make him a him treating everybody around him including his father badly verbally flaying everybody in sight when they don't like what he has to say that's not badass and that's what it's tagged as is that he's a badass I'm like no he's just a dick A huge dick. And yeah, you don't and Ellie mentioned the kid seem abusive. Yeah, and Ellie made a good example of that in canon. Was that at least I think this is the point she's making? Um, is that Gideon in Criminal Minds? Um, was it, I don't think they intended for him to be the asshole that he was. A lot of times he comes off patronizing and um, abrupt and uncaring. Yep. And you're just, no, I don't want to. Oh, we're down to 90 seconds. My, how time flies. But we got through both questions. I think we got through them fully, even if yeah. I think it was a little bit a little bit difficult to clearly answer the second question. But it's just because it's yeah. so subjective. Right. So, Jessica, or J-Lynn. J-Lo. J-Lynn. Uh, Jay Lynn, who's better than J-Lo, um, feel free to, to ask more questions about this if um, we brought up more questions than we did answers. <laughs> you guys have a great weekend, and we will chat with you later. Say goodnight, Julie. Good night, everyone.